All righty. Welcome, everyone. Today, we wanted to have a discussion. Well, we're going to start out with a discussion regarding uh, what I see as a, a huge issue that needs to be taken on within our culture, within our society, and it rears its head in many different ways. We could lump it all together as identity politics, group identity. They have this cool little uh, acronym now, DIE, which is diversity, inclusion, and equity, but they're all speaking around the same kind of topics. And it's, you know, most of us were raised, you don't judge a person based on their group, whether the group be a race or their sex or anything else. And now we're starting to experience, and we've been experiencing for about five years now, this new trend towards that being the only way we judge and identify people is through a group, right? Whether we judge them through their race, through their uh, sex, through their sexual orientation, whatever it is. And, and they are using these phrases, which sound good on the face. Diversity sounds like a good thing, but what does it actually entail with these you know, these new doctrines that are being uh, ushered in under the guise of identity politics. Um, that's where we'll start the discussion. And later on, we'll open it up and go into an open discussion. So, Gingy, you want to start us off? Sure thing. Where to begin? This is something that I have been more and more baffled by since probably 20, 2014. What was the year that we had Alicia? <laughs> yeah, I know. I knew you were going to Yeah, that was 2014 or 2015. And I thought she was completely out of her mind and that she was just making shit up. And then within five years, everyone's talking like she was. It's throughout the media. But remember, she was in academia. And she was a social justice warrior. So she was basically showing us what was coming because she was, you know, involved with the University of New Mexico as a social justice warrior. And so she was kind of at the forefront of pushing these ideologies. And uh, I basically told her she was out of her mind and that there was no way I was going to call anyone Zim or Zur um, and uh, sit down and shut up. <laughs> Um, I had actually been hearing about it before she brought that up. It was not foreign to me. That wasn't the first time I heard it. And I was like, oh, I mean, is this one of those um, those people that... <laughs> I mean, because I know there are people out there that identify as, like, a fox. And they legit think that they're actually a fox. Or people that are into, um, like, cosplay. And people that are into whatever else. There's always like the crazy old cat lady who thinks she's a cat herself and goes around licking right. all her cats. But right. and, and hold on, I want to make a distinction here because th this does fall under the rubric of identity politics, but you're also kind of venturing out into this these uh, these gender identities, right? Where and, and again, not saying it's not a part of identity politics, but it's a subset. So it's kind of like how we mentioned diversity, inclusion, equity. These are all pieces of it. 
and this what used to be uh, basically a mental illness like if somebody believed they were a fox they were treated for having a mental illness not oh okay let's reinforce that delusion um so that's that's where we're at so there that i just want to make that distinction that this isn't a conversation just around that gender element of it it's it's the bigger picture of the identity politics as a whole that involves race and gender and all of the what I call the uh, intersectional bingo card. <laughs> right. Um, so for me, it's been um, kind of watching it grow. That's That's been baffling me because to me, I never had an issue with the way someone wanted to identify. Like if you were biologically a man, and you identified as a woman and you wanted to do like the surgeries and everything that comes along with the transition by all means. And if you want me to call you a certain way, by all means, but when it becomes part of, um, I guess, lumping people into groups and saying that all men are this way or all women are this way. And you start to assume stereotypes on people that I see there a line being crossed that takes it from, you know, self-expression and potentially peaceful self-expression to dangerous waters where, you know, you're not really understanding what's going on or, or who you're engaging with. You've assumed this idea about a certain group of people and overlaid that identity or whatever on top of them. And it's, it's the same way for self-identity. You know, I, I honestly don't think we can identify ourselves with anything without it being a limiting action. Meaning like if I say I am a man, that excludes all the other potentials of what I am. Could be a you know, father, a brother, a son. Um, <laughs> like I forget who it was, Brandon, someone you were working with was like, even my dog's got a different name for me. He calls me Woof. <laughs> that, that was uh, Gordon. That was, that's right. <clears throat> and so to me, it's like, I could identify as Woof if I wanted to. Like, that's my name. And that's who I am. Go ask this guy. He calls me Woof every day. Um, but the, to me, like, the, the baffling thing, which I'll go back to um, Dave Chappelle, is he's like, I, I believe that everybody, and I think I put this in the chat, he's like, I'm, I'm a firm, firm believer in people's right to express themselves. Everybody's got that right. You know, express how they feel on the inside. He's like, but what? to what extent do I have to play a role in your self-image? And it's when people are going around playing a role in other people's self-images or forcing them to play a role in their self-image that we start to have a problem because there's an infinite number of ways we can identify people. And and, and in all honesty, if you follow the identity politics game far enough, you end up with, you know, say like men and women, and then you have men and women of color or not, or of um, cisgendered or, or gay or whatever else. You, you start boiling that down and eventually you'll come down to like the twins that are completely identical, but yet this one's the older one and this one's the younger one by seconds or minutes. And then you end up at the individual level again. 
And so really identity politics is kind of just a way to um, abstract the nature of who we are and can be potentially dangerous if you if you stay in that space and start lumping people together as if you know that is who they are and <laughs> well let me bring, let me let me bring uh, an aspect to this that I, I feel you're glossing over um, and that is the victim okay this I see this as much more insidious um, than just simply an abstraction of identity. I see this as, and, and I'm, I'm seeing it through how they're applying this ideology. It is, it, it, to me, it's a tool of enslavement. Why do I say that? Because what you're doing in intersectionality is you're creating a hierarchy of victimhood, okay? So if you're a black trans midget is Muslim, well, you win, okay? You're the ultimate victim. You go to the top of the list. And then everyone else under that. And the, and, and the insidious part about this is based on your intersectional bingo card, your, your quality uh, and quantity of victimhood, your voice counts more. So guess who ends up at the bottom <laughs> of the intersectional bingo card in the hierarchy. And it's the majority of the population, which is white men, white women, right? Um, but they're, they're even being more insidious about this because it's really, it's not about uh, representation in the population even because they're clearly leaving out Asians in this conversation because they're, they're pushing this white privilege ideology which is to state that, oh, well, there's more white men and white women in these things because they have white privilege, not because they make up the majority of the population. But then when you say, oh, yeah, however, Asian women make on average more per capita than any other demographic, they don't acknowledge that because Asian women are a very small part of the, of the population and it doesn't fit with their narrative that the whites are the devil <laughs> and they're oppressing everyone else. But this is the play. It's you create an oppressor, you create the oppressed. And everyone who has their intersectional bingo card filled out with the most number of checkboxes is more oppressed. Their voice counts more. And white men are at the very bottom. And, you know, followed probably by Asian men. That's probably who will get the, you know, the next kick to the nuts. Then white women. And then, you know, the, and they'll just... They'll always create an oppressor, okay? And, and, and based on that, this victimness that they're instilling based on a group identity, again, not on an individual. They, it, this isn't based on an individual. You identify by your intersectional group and your intersectional group, the entire group is labeled a victim. Victim is the opposite of accountability and responsibility. You only have freedom when you have and power when you are responsible and accountable. So this is why I see this as a tool of enslavement, because if you get the entire population to identify as victims, well, then there's no, they have no accountability, they have no responsibility, and therefore they have no power. 
and they have no voice and they have no freedom, right? So it's, I see it as a very insidious kind of ideology. I don't see it as harmless at all. And we used to have words for this when you make judgments and generalizations based on gender or race. We used to call it sexism and racism. Now, racism is being labeled anti-racism. Sexism is just fallen into this group of, well, there is no such thing as gender. So they're, they're twisting what we as a culture had had values with. We're like, look, it's not good to judge people based on their sex. It's everyone should be equal under the law, regardless of your sex, regardless of your race. That's all being pushed away. And that's something we evolved into over time because we saw that equality, not equity, was important. Okay. Having equal access, having equal opportunity, being equal under the law. These are all things we value as a society and as a culture, and all that is being torn away. And that will be, and not will be, it is what is unraveling the social fabric of our culture, of our society. So I see this as a deep-seated and insidious issue. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there is a, a layer of confusion for people between who they are and the groups that they choose to identify with. Like even saying I identify as a man would be to identify with a group of the population that, you know, may have penises, for instance. Um, on the well, whoa, 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 that is way not politically correct. Better continue. <laughs> <laughs> for instance, talking about chromosomes, we can talk about that too. Um, so I, I'd like to get your opinion on what's what's the relationship between identity and and the group because there's there's something there for me in that you know i was talking with somebody uh was it just a couple of days ago or something and it was as if there's this need in the population on the planet to discover who they are or to identify with something and somebody's walking in being like well boom here's this beautiful matrix with unlimited ways to identify yourself. And you can even have intersections of all of these ways to identify. And here you go. By the way, um, you know, it's, a, it's a victim blame game. And so if I had no idea who I was and I got handed this game, it would be very easy for me to say, oh, I'll pick this one and this one and this one. Oh, cool. Let me see what my, and you put it, bingo card looks like at the end. When everything's checked off in my winner. Does my voice matter? Am I important? But there's still, I don't know who I, I am. It's like, it's an abstraction. And I think when people find it fruitless, when people find it unsatisfactory, they're going to have to move on to figure out who they actually are. More than just these identities. Does that make well, any I sense? Think it, 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 well, your, your question makes sense. But 
you're presuming that there's logic and reason behind the ideology, and there is absolutely not. Um, there, it is about erasing individualism. So as opposed to like making your assessments of an individual based on their merit, based on their character, it is washing all that away as if values, character, um, uh, any individuality is meaningless. All that matters is their intersectional qualifications, their group identity. And this, and this not only affects the culture at large because it does create this meaninglessness. And right now you're seeing psychosis at a level you've never seen before. People are losing their minds because of these ideologies that are being pushed. And the reason they're losing their minds is because deep down, we all hold values, okay? Whether or not you're in integrity with those values, whether or not you're even present to those values, they do exist at some level. And when you start following this ideology, which has become like a religion, when you start following and living out this ideology, what happens is that you begin to say things and to do things that contradict your values, okay? So like when you say, well, we can't hire that guy because he's white. That's racist. And at a deep level, you know that's racist, but you're being told that you're virtuous for doing this, okay? So that it's the system of false virtues that comes with it. And so what's occurring here is what we call cognitive dissonance, where my words and my actions don't line up with my underlying values. And these false virtues are just that. They're false virtues. So they, they can't line up with my values either. So you literally, you start, to, you start to have this psychosis within you because cognitive dissonance creates a high level of anxiety. And so the more you do it, the more you witness it, because you're seeing it at all levels of our society and culture. You're seeing it all throughout the media. You're seeing it all through social media. People are acting in ways that have these false virtues, but in reality do not align at all with our values as individuals, with our values as a culture, with our values as a society. They're in complete contradiction to our values. And so there's this cognitive dissonance which is creating a high level of anxiety and psychosis in the population. This is a loss of meaning. So you were talking about like, I mean, you didn't say these words, but where I kind of saw you getting at is these people are experiencing an identity crisis because they know not who they are. Exactly. Right. So because they're in, in, and they've lost their connection to any real values. And a loss of connection to your values is also a loss of connection to your meaning and your purpose in life. And so this is why you're seeing, like, I mean, I'm sure everyone on this call right now has seen, whether in the media, whether in real life, in a grocery store, whatever, you've seen a psychosis emerge in people. And this is why they're, they're being told they're virtuous by being a bunch of racists, by being a bunch of sexists. 
And at some level, they know they're not virtuous. And this is creating a high level of anxiety, which is driving them to psychosis. It's pathological. The, the, this entire ideology is pathological at every level. You know, and then you have good feeling words like diversity. What's diversity right now? Diversity is let's get a bunch of people who all think the exact same, make sure none of them are white, and that's diversity. <laughs> that, that's the new definition of diversity. It, as, well, as, as long as they belong to different groups. You see, diversity no longer recognizes the individual. Shouldn't diversity really mean like, well, we have people who actually have expertise in different fields. We have people who think differently. We have people with different backgrounds rather than it being purely a, a, a formulation based on these intersectional checkboxes. Like, oh, well, we got one black, we got one Latino, we got one Asian. We're diverse, you know, regardless of the fact that they all do the same thing. They all grew up in the same place. They all think the same way because what we are judging people on isn't as an individual, it, we're not judging or assessing them based on their merit. We're not judging or assessing them based on their character. We're judging and assessing based on these imaginary qualities, right? And then That's if it. you look at, and, and it's the same with inclusion, <laughs> diversity in inclusion. Well, inclusion is again, well, you know, get, get, make sure you got all the intersectional checkboxes checked and uh, make sure there's no whites because that's inclusion. <laughs> so you see that these are, these are contradictions of the very terms. What they're calling diversity is the opposite of diversity. What they're calling inclusion is the opposite of inclusion. And the most insidious of the die is equity because now we have this, what I'll call neo-racism, since they've redefined racism. We have this neo-racism where it's, you, 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 you're, it's a virtue to base your judgments on race, right? That's racism. <laughs> no matter how you cut it, that's racism. It's not their definition of racism. The new definition of racism in our culture and in our society is if there is unequal outcome per capita based on race, then, there, then that is racism. And what, what do you mean by that? Oh, just the system in general. <laughs> we, we can't actually point to anything that actually creates this unequalness because the only vector of measurement, the only variable we're measuring it by is race. We're taking nothing else into account. We're saying, well, unequal outcome must be racism. And you're, and you're starting to see now they're putting in policies and legislation to force equal outcome. That's equity. When you start to put forth legislation and you start to put forth laws that force equal outcome, well, then you have that is racism. <laughs> that is sexism. And it's being, it's being, it's literally being written into our laws. So they were saying that unequal outcome was because of institutional racism. 
which we don't actually have institutional racism. We got rid of institutional racism. Institutional racism would be laws that say, well, white people can do this, black people can't do that. White people can eat here, black people can't. Here's a white person drinking fountain, here's a black person drinking fountain. That's don't we institutional have, Don't we have one institutional racist law? Yeah, we do. We do. It's called affirmative action. It's against whites and Asians. <laughs> that's, that's the only institutional racism we have. But that's okay because it's against whites and Asians. <laughs> now, I, I think, I mean, because I live with this, <laughs> um, I, I'm exposed to this type of thought process quite often. And to me, it's from what I gather anyway, is that it's more about the effects of racists that created the systems that we operate in today. So because racist slave owning white people created our monetary system, it's, it only benefits the white people, their descendants. So it's that type right. of mentality where there's this lasting effect of racism in the system. It's not that the system itself, um, and in a way it is about the system itself being racist, but it's, it's about creating unequal outcomes, like you said. And I've even heard somebody define racism, not by the, the, the Webster's or the legal dictionary, or any other common understanding of it before 2010, I'll say, but they define it as, you know, if you see unequal outcomes, of race that is racism so you need to go right. look into the system to figure out how to uh how to fix that and really this the big thing about this whole conversation for me which is why i have such a hard time with it is that nobody not a single person i've heard talk about this has ever said and here's what we do about it <laughs> it was no they, tear the they are they system are. down they are, yeah, exactly. That is what we do about it. They're saying they're, but that's it's not a solution. They're not even talking about what we build in its place. They're just like, the whole thing's uh, it's all fucked, so burn it down and then we'll see where we're at then. There's no solution, there's just destruction, right? And in reality, again, th like this kind of mathematics where you boil everything down to a single variable, meaning we have an unequal outcome based on race and we look at nothing else other than the race, right? Like, well, black people make up 13% of the population. They make up 50% of the prison population. Clearly it's racism. Taking no other variables into account, this is like a simpleton's mathematical model. This is like Marxism. <laughs> this is like the Marxist economic model. He, like, I always make fun of Marx because I feel like he had a childlike approach to economics, right? And this is even more childlike, you know, and, and because they refuse to look at any other variables. And it's, again, the purpose is to destroy the culture. So they don't want to look at any other variables because their only solution is burn it down, Right destroy the whole thing because it's racist. And why is it racist? Oh, because there's unequal outcome. And that's the only variable we're willing to look at is that per, the, the per capita representation of a particular race in any, in any, anywhere, in any domain of life is evidence of racism, okay? And again, they conveniently leave out like the highest paid uh, people are Asian women, right? Per capita. 
Asian women get paid more than any other demographic, but they leave that out of the equation because it doesn't fit with the narrative. You know, they, the, again, it's the big bad white man is, is, their, is their focus as the oppressor. And so statistics like that don't fit the narrative, so they just ignore it. Now, again, can we boil it down to that single variable and say, oh, well, clearly there's, you know, Asian woman privilege. They must have the highest privilege of all. They must be the ultimate oppressors. No, because it, it is a very complex model, Our society in general, society, culture. It's a complex model. You can't boil any of it down to a single variable. But again, they're not actually trying. <laughs> this is why I see it as these ideologies is so insidious, is they're not actually trying to create any kind of a solution. Because if, the, if, the, if, they're, if they really were looking for a solution, then they would look at all the variables involved, right? And realistically, they would be in partnership with everybody else. Because underneath all of these ideologies, if you were to say, well, the reason why I want to address everything that I've been talking about in, in institutional racism or, or anything else is because I want everybody to have a fair shot at life. And then if you get down to that level of it, it's like no one disagrees with that. Yeah, I mean, it should be a play, you know, fair playing field for everybody. So why aren't we talking about fairness as opposed to equity? You see what I mean? There's right. no, like, because, it's also we've divisive built, in that way. Yeah, we've, because in reality, it's very hard to attack that aspect of our system because we've been building it into a fair, equal system for so long. Yeah. And now they're undoing all that. <laughs> they're undoing the fairness and the equality that took us centuries to build into Western culture, right? Because, yeah, there is the capacity to be unfair. Human beings have that within them, you know? And, and we at one point even had it part of our system, part of our laws. Oh, you're a woman? You can't vote. You can't own land, right? But that's not the way it is anymore. Like now that the, the equality aspect has been ironed out, there are no more, well, again, aside from affirmative action laws, there are no more laws that are sexist or racist. Everyone is seen as equal under the law, right? So they can't really attack that aspect because there isn't anything that's unfair. Like I get it in the 60s. This all had more, made more sense when there were laws that were oppressive towards people because of a group identity. Dude, my dad <laughs> remembers living in Atlanta, not being able to go to the same movie theater or not being able to drink the same water fountain or go to schools and shit. And when he moved to Denver, he was like, oh, my God, this place is amazing. Everybody shares everything. That is a legit experience in his lifetime. It's not that we're even that far off from those days. Right. And that's real systemic or institutional racism. You're literally not allowed to go into a building or use certain facilities because of the color of your skin, regardless of your race, even, you know, like all the races with this color skin, <laughs> right. not allowed right. to use this. And like, we have come so far getting rid of all of that crap 
I mean, there's still some people that game the system, some people that cheat the system, some people that, you know, get around and cut corners or, or you know, corrupt, put place corrupt individuals in, in positions of power or whatever you may call it. And that's going to happen no matter what system is there, because some people that exist are opportunistic. They'll see an opportunity, they will break a law or cut a corner, bend a rule in order to make it happen. And that's not even the minority of people. <laughs> I think most people on the planet would take opportunities if they thought they could get away with it and it would be beneficial to them. I mean, unless they're really strong and grounded in their morals and their, you know, the virtues, which I'm seeing a decline of that on the planet, conversely. Right. And so, you know, I, th- I feel like I've, I've definitely, again, anyone, anyone on who wants to jump in at any time, please jump in. If you have any questions, if you have anything you would like to contribute, um, this is an open conversation. So at any time, anyone jump in, um, ask any questions you might have or make any contributions you might have. Cause I'd like to also move into like, well, what do we do about this? You know, cause this is clearly, a disease within our culture. It is tearing us apart. It is tearing our country apart. It is, it has created such polarization and division that those of us who can identify it, those of us who can recognize it, we need to do something. We can't just stand idly by and watch our culture be ripped apart. I mean, does anyone else see what we see with this? I Ginger. I see it. I I think uh, maybe I see it where where I live. Um, because I live near a college too, so I have the professors that I I know, and you know people that work at the colleges, and and some of the kids. I have I have actually have a friend who just graduated college that said she was people were making her feel guilty for being white. And then there's other things where I, I see certain groups um, segregating themselves and creating, you know, it's like, I, cause for me, I was like, well, I thought we were getting away from all this. And here now it's like they, you know, these people wanted to be, um, I guess, you know, part of everything and included in everything. And now they're separating themselves. And I, I don't know. I just think that's kind of, kind of odd. Yeah. It's moving in the opposite direction of all the progress we've made as a culture. Yeah. It's just bizarre to me. <laughs> so I see it. I see another tool provision. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting that the word equity keeps coming into this too, because I've seen equity as basically the king's conscience in a a court of equity in which there's a a right for every wrong and a remedy for every wrong. And and like the maxims of equity and, and the English equity laws are are actually really beautiful. So it's hard for me to hear the word equity used as a derogatory term because once again, they've, they've taken that word and, and 
placed it upon something to to mean something different than than what we've seen it and and really is what it comes down to is is it's just more ways to keep people divided we've had people that we thought were our friends that ended up saying that we're totally racist and and you know i've never had any racist inclinations in my life and it's just so interesting for people to call me racist because i'm a white guy and i believe in in equal opportunity but again just just like you're saying i I don't believe that we should turn the scales the other direction especially over something that that happened in the past because we are where we are now and and right now we need to just create moving forward where everybody does have an equal opportunity to move forward and we focus on what we can create as a society i have just recently got into the workings of the media and some theories behind it and it's kind of turned me off from wanting to watch any sort of tv drama sitcoms comedy stand-ups i mean you name it i don't want to watch it i used to be a huge movie buff and now i just want to read and i want to learn and what i'm finding out is that our media has gotten worse and people are relying upon it more so now than ever because of what is going on politically. And more and more media outlets are on the side of promoting divisiveness. They're the ones saying, yes, there's a problem. We need to fix it. But they're not really talking about what the fix is. And so it starts to make me think, okay, well, is it you're the problem? Because you're, you keep telling people there's a problem, but you're not talking about what can be done to fix it. And so it just makes me think that they're just perpetuating this huge circle and making us at each other's throats. That's my take on it, is that the media has become more dominant right now and social media, especially censoring other sides of arguments where people can't talk about their differences and work things out. And also goes back to, you know, identifying is we've been ingrained from a very early age to identify. What are you going to be when you grow up? What type of person do you want to be? Rather than just allowing people just to evolve and figure out who they are based on their, like you said, principles and their their values they're almost forced into identifying with something you can't move forward unless you identify with something and I saw it with my stepdaughter and you know going through her middle school and just how she was just on this major roller coaster of switching identities like crazy now it makes me question our school institutions and and or and or what are her peers feeding her and where are they getting their information? Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Rachel. I'm hesitant to say this, but I, I'm not 
don't experience the world this way. And I, I'm wondering who's they and who who's we in this conversation? I'm they. So yeah, because you're because you're a white woman. So you're an oppressor. I'm I'm uh, open to that if somebody experiences me that way. Um, I don't know. For me, it's I don't ever want to stop hearing how other people feel. I don't I don't want to come out swinging, assuming I'm the they. Like if if for example, last week I had somebody reach out to me with. Uh, probably one of those beautiful emails I received. I was the they in their world, and they were apologizing to me because they had they'd me. I, I didn't relate it to the they until you just brought it up, but this situation, um, because they were going through something in their lives where they were trying to figure out who they were, and somebody had, had introduced them to this concept of groups. And eventually she came to who something closer to who her authentic self is, and she felt inclined to apologize. Throughout the process, I was neither here nor there. She was just evolving to me. Um, And I loved her either way, so it didn't matter to me. Um, You know, so I'm brought back to when I was in my 20s and I worked at Chase Bank. We had this announcement for... You know, individuals, what minorities, I think, I think the term minority was used, minorities um, being more comfortable in the workplace, something to this effect. Well, you know, I show up and I think, uh, who wouldn't show up? Like, these are my, my colleagues and boy, you know, if I contribute to this in any way, I certainly want to know and if anybody sitting next to me contributes this in any way, I certainly want to be around to see what I can do to 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 be or not be it, to support or not support it, to check it or not check it. And um, I remember showing up and, and thinking, where are my colleagues? Like, where is everybody? And the speaker, who uh, happened to be black in this case, uh, said, so why why did you come? And it wasn't until that moment, until I realized I was different. Like, I didn't, I just thought people got caught in a meeting, or they just didn't make it important or something. So anyway, I say all this because I've I've kind of, by fault, have not been, I just don't experience the world in a they, even when people are trying to they me. And I wonder... If it creates peace to assume what the they. So forgive me for being contrarian in some way. I, I just um, I don't want to create the very thing by assuming that it is. I, I almost don't want to give it energy. But anyway, that uh, the conversation went a little left, but that, that's what came up for me. And that's a, I would say that's a, I'll say it's an admirable place to be. But when they start marching off the rest of the days, because that's where we're heading. 
Like that's well, the reality. Like they, they, they're labeling as oppressors, and they're talking about sending you to re-education camps. Like this is really happening. I don't know if you're in touch with what's happening in the world right now. This is being talked about on CNN. You being sent to a re-education camp. Anchors on CNN are talking about this. This is a we're at a very dangerous place in our history. This happened before, happened in the Soviet Union, happened in China, and it doesn't end well for the, for the oppressors. It all started with turning their neighbors on each other. Which is what's happening. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, what exactly is your perception on what they're going to be re-educating people upon uh, from, from what I've seen from a very, very early age is, is, is nothing but division and there must be a winner and there must be an enemy other than thine self uh, has always been taught throughout the ages and, you know, give them bread and give them circuses and, and, and let them entertain themselves. I'm just wondering are the way our system is designed currently uh, the way the media is designed currently, the way the this natural realm is is designed, is to be dis- deceived almost to create the illusion of individuality and separation. When in in the true world, commercially and spiritually, we're all we're all connected legally in some aspects. It doesn't matter who you are; um, you're you're in bondage. So I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, you said this is happening now, the re-education. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how much further can they separate, divide, and conquer the masses more than they are now? Until everyone is aligned with the ideologies. It's a religion. Make no mistake about it. You can group it all together and call it wokeism. That's, that's my little pet name for it. But if you think differently, if you see the world differently, if you speak in a way that is not coherent with or in alignment with these ideologies, well, then you're an enemy. You're an oppressor. You're a racist. You're a white supremacist. And and the re-education camp, the only people getting out of the re-education camp are the people who step in line to act like the psychotic woke running around. That's the only way out of the re-education camp. If you don't quote unquote re-educate, and again, I'm just basing this on previous models, that the idea of the re-education camp is not new. It happened in the Soviet Union. It happened in China, and that's what they did. If you didn't fall in lockstep with the ideology of the party, well, then you were done away with. You were either executed or sent to a gulag because they need everyone to be reflecting this ideology. Anything that opposes the ideology is a threat. So you thought you were a slave before. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. This ain't, this ain't like the Soviet Union. This ain't like communist China. 
yet. But that is the road. These ideologies were, were, were engineered for the purpose of creating tyranny. That's why they exist. This was the brainchild of people like Lenin and, and Gramsci, right? We, that we talked about last week. Of uh, Herbert Mercusa, right? These and, and, and academics throughout the ages, right? The postmodernists. Like, this is an engineering program. How do we create a communist system? How do we create the tyranny, the state controlled, absolutely controlled, where people have no rights? no property. How do you make that happen? Step one, destroy the culture, destroy the history. This is why they're tearing down statues. This is why they're making our entire history, every single historical figure wrong and bad. I mean, if, if Lincoln isn't safe from the woke mob, who is? I've seen it happen with the uh, the Native Indians as well. When uh, I've read the the dialogues, I live in Virginia, and I've I've read some of the assemblies of the uh, original colony and how they were uh, literally on on missions and charters to beat, destroy, and kill all the natives and take over the lands. And as they as they did that, um, they would. Uh, either kill them or grab the children, change their name to John and Bob, erase all their histories, give them a new, you know, new identity, and and march them along into a corner and basically erase everything from their past, so that it's to the point where people have such a very difficult time trying to trace their lineage because everything was erased. Right. That that's yeah. How we call those boarding schools. People. That was the, uh, the main strategy they used in Canada, actually. Um, they didn't call it re-education. They called them boarding schools. And they go into communities and take Native kids, put them into these schools, cut their hair, give them the haircuts, give them the, the suits and the button-downs and the shoes and all that stuff. And basically, when what their minds was, like, civilize this kid teach them English and then send them back into their communities. And then they weren't accepted back in their communities as, you know, as a native, as one of them, it was always kind of like this weird white Indian or sorry, I'll say like, yeah, <laughs> you know, white Indian type of mentality. It's a, uh, my mom works with, with native people and there is a lot of them that struggle with, with, the loss of identity after going to one of these re-education type of centers. <clears throat> it's no joke. Hence why we don't celebrate Thanksgiving in our household. That's uh. I almost celebrate nothing other than Independence Day when you when you go back to the roots of of the you know the basis and the foundation of all these these um holy days or holidays that that everybody celebrates it's it's kind of twisted in a lot of ways. 
Well, it depends on your perspective. I mean, in reality, I think, I mean, I think this is probably a discussion for another day because this is about uh, tradition and culture. Um, and depending on your perspective of what, like, let's say what the winter solstice holiday is, whether you look at it as Christmas or something else, um, this is something that goes back to the beginning of humanity, you know, tracking the cosmic clock. So there's nothing insidious or evil about it. Now, whether the Christians or the Catholic Church turned it into something is immaterial. It's irrelevant. It's about human tradition that goes back tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Because it was a very significant time in the cosmic clock for human beings. And not to say that it has to be that time, but in the, rest, in the preservation of culture, tradition is one of those things that ties us within with the social fabric. Like I said, this isn't really a, a group identity discussion. <laughs> this, this has more to do with the social fabric, which is, again, being attacked, being destroyed in many ways. Um, but one of the ways is erasing those traditional ideas or demonizing traditions. That's why they, that's why in reality, all our traditions are under attack, including, you know, the, the religion that the majority of the people of this country, uh, practice or follow. Because it's it's a it's key to conquering it is destroying the culture. How much of that has to do with the rewriting of definitions? Because to me, that's where most of the cognitive dissonance and the the interruption of the meeting of the minds happens. Is like having a conversation with somebody about systemic racism and you're thinking it's all about laws that would be prohibit somebody or include somebody based off of race alone. And they're thinking it's residual effects of racism back when it was a thing. And that conversation cannot hap really happen because you're, you're speaking into two completely different definitions or two completely different understandings of, of, of the phrase or the word. And that's just something at, you know, one word, one, I'm not talking about an entire ideology even. And when you have mass amounts of words being redefined or, or rewriting of certain historical events, then can you really come together? if you have people in completely different understandings, like, like even just with COVID over 2020, how many people talked to each other came together and had the same facts it just didn't happen. Be like, Oh yeah, I hate masks. Yeah, me too. Well, why? Well, cause they create CO2 and I can't breathe. And the other person's like, Oh, cause they just don't work. You know, everyone had their different opinions depending on where they got their, their facts from. And I'm seeing that more than just, you know, COVID or um, uh, identity politics or racism and all that stuff. It's it's happening, and that gap is widening across well, all domains because, of life. Yeah, and it, and again, it's because the the language is being weaponized and it's being obfuscated. But the only reason that can have an effect and an impact on our culture 
is because of the disconnection from values. Like regardless of what they want to call it, okay? You know racism. You know it. Deep down, your value system knows when, you're, when something ain't right. When you're judging someone not on how they show up as an individual, not on their individual character, not under their individual merits, you know at a deep level, regardless of what you want to call it, whether you say, no, that's a virtue, that's a good thing. I acknowledge my white privilege, right? These are false virtues. And if you're disconnected from your values, then yeah, you get caught up in this meaningless obfuscation of language which is, which is being twisted intentionally so that nobody can track or follow anything that's going on. Like I said, they're, it's literally, they're calling things the opposite of what they are. Well, that, that's interesting. I, I think, Gigi, between what you said and Brandon, between what you've just said, now I'm starting to, to get some clarity here because, you know, one of the things that led me even to my group was um, somebody I love dearly who actually said to me, you fucking white people. And I'm like, what? Because, like, I was sh I was traumatized by it, actually. I, I didn't know what it meant. And, and I was traumatized that when they spoke it, they seemed traumatized. And so I spent a good amount of time trying to figure out what, what was that all about and i really landed with you know it matters to me uh whether somebody feels you know safe around me so i'm i'm hearing what you're saying and i think you opened with the word the, the term under the guise of and so what we're talking about is like there's some legitimate racism and you know some there is some legit i mean not legitimizing of but um like these things are real these experiences that are are not good uh human to human are are real i i for some reason thought we might have been discrediting that but what you're saying is no they're being leveraged and then manipulated um so while those are real they're kind of being used as an instrument to twist the message to create something other than healing that um, and here's here, here's an example okay you have a bad experience let's say with a black man if you turn around and judge all black men based on that individual's actions is that racist for me it would be yes it absolutely is <laughs> that is racism because, but see, you're, you're even questioning whether or not that, that like, is that okay to say? Because no, I, that's, I, I, that's the idea that has been pressed into our society is that because there is no more individual. Can, can you please turn off your mic? Can you please mute? Um, because there is no individual, that everything is judged on a group. So now... If a black man gets killed by a police officer, he's a martyr, regardless of what kind of a criminal he is. He's a martyr. And that's because you're not judging the individual. 
You're not judging him on his character. You're not judging him on his actions. You're judging him as a part of a group. So we, so you can't see the individual. You can't see the individual's characteristics. You can't see their virtues. You can't see anything about them other than what is portrayed as a group identity. And the same thing, a black person may come up against an actual racist white person. If now he takes that and judges all white people based on that one white person, is that racism? Of course. Of course. But don't let anyone in public hear you say that. Anytime you make up an assumption about an entire group of people and the only factor is race, is racism. When you lump everybody of the same race into the same category, that's racism. Right. And, and going back to the individual that said that to me, I, I didn't even consider like to judge all black people based on that statement. I don't even judge him based on the statement. He was being authentic and, and angry. And so it, it gave me some real insight. Did you call him a racist? Did you tell him what he said was racist? No, at the time, I was like, what? no, because it came from a place of... No, it just came from a place of hurt is what I was experiencing. And so I just wanted to understand where that pain was coming from more than anything because it didn't live within me. What he was saying didn't represent anything it was about and I wanted to know like where did that come from? How does like is that even real or is he out of his mind? And and uh, just notice you wouldn't have called him a racist. That is a he was being racist, plain and simple. I would call it out. You're being racist. But here's the thing. It was because you perceived him as a victim. Do you see how they're getting away with this? Remember what I told you at the very beginning? All the intersectional groups are victims. Therefore, it's okay for it to be racist. It's okay to say racist statements. No accountability, no accountability, no responsibility when you're a victim. Pardon me if uh, this is inappropriate, but my uh, fiancé sent me this a while back, and he finally made me sit down and watch it today. And I thought it was great. Um, however, it's a, it's a black man talking about the top five issues facing black Americans. And what was really powerful about it was he wasn't placing any blame on anybody other than starting with the party within themselves. And I turned to my fiance afterward and I was like, well, that's, I, that's a great message. I think everybody needs to internally reflect before they demand peace from other people. However, as a white person, there's no way I could ever post this and not offend somebody because it would, could be and would be taken a wrong way other than how I mean it to be. 
And where I would mean it to be is just, guys, come together. Let's open our eyes here. Stop listening to what other people are feeding you and think for yourself. And if it's okay with you, I would like to drop this video in the chat. Oh, yeah. Just, just uh, make sure you preface it, preface it with uh, letting everybody know that your cat's black and he said it's okay for you to do it. Hey, and I do have a black cat. <laughs> I can post a picture of him with it. Uh, I say that because my dad's black and it lets me get away with way too much of that, that bullshit. <laughs> my goodness. How funny. Well, mostly black. Although his emojis are blacker than anything I've ever seen. <laughs> so something, you know, you earlier had asked, um, you know, like what we can do about this. And not that I know, but, um, you know, part of this thing with uh, just the, to bring it even more general, just dealing with people as themselves based on their merits and, you know, uh, uh, interaction in the moment or dealing with, you know, generalized groups and everyone being kind of amorphized and blobbed into these s series of labeling, which is something I've noticed for s so many years, how, how, um, how much people want to box each other in and label each other in order to understand or not actually in order to not understand them and but feel that they do and so i guess what's coming to me is that anything that can and i've done this for years try to befuddle people i guess to not allow them to to hold those views and just to to do it in ways that aren't like performative it's not about like trying to prove to people, oh, I'm different from the rest of them or all that type of stuff. But, but just to be the type of person that, uh, that is not able to be pinned and defined by that, I feel that when I'm talking with people, it, that it, it works to just start to soften these. And this is one-to-one. -one. This isn't like a complete solution, but this is saying interaction to interaction that when when people you know they think that either uh you know because i care about the environment i must be left wing just false or they think that because i said oh yeah trump actually i don't have any problem with him that i'm a so-called trump supporter whatever that means another group to leverage against and in more weaponized language it was like oh they used to be called republicans now they're trump supporters so all these things to say um, just, just confuse people's thing. And I know, yeah, I guess the, um, yeah, I don't know how positive that is just to try to confuse people, but it's like that they're ingrained, uh, mentalities around being able to box people in, um, just, just challenging that and hopefully getting them to see that like, everyone can have their own viewpoint and it's so hard to do over the last 10 years because um, well, especially lately now people are afraid to really speak their mind because it's more about 
saying the right things and being gaining acceptance of their peers by you know saying whatever is popular for the moment and and that's what's allowing these things to catch on like um oh we should just burn everything down or all the traditions are bogus and all this stuff where um uh it's 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 crazy that that people are are lacking that sense of self surety um to be able to be themselves and then having to um team up with a group it's it's kind of like gang mentality or something to be like i'm in a tough environment where i'm feeling threatened and so maybe if i get in with these anarchists or i get in with these uh you know like whatever kind of group it is that that they'll support me and they'll have my back because you know we all share the ideology we speak the same language and uh and then i'll be protected against being able having to articulate my own thoughts or um you know be exposed and you know i've I, yeah I, this is another part of this but you know also we talked about it before just just allowing other people to know that that they are being honored as an individual and um and allowed to have like to say things uh i I, I don't know i'm kind of losing the hold but like just being able to express those moments to moments and and show people that you can have a, a life and a viewpoint and a mentality that's able to simultaneously be holding many positions at once at the same time and it's not a full resolution of everything but yeah that's that's how i try to address this when i see people getting really cornered in a certain viewpoint is i try to offer them the the alternative in a way that somehow doesn't challenge them but it forces them to acknowledge it but hold on i just want to build on that real quick so being accountable and being responsible in my life will give me the ability and the confidence to hold other people accountable. So do not hold people in victim. Do not allow them to escape their own accountability. But the only way you can hold others accountable is if you allow others to hold you accountable and you hold yourself accountable. We have to eliminate the victim, right? You have to eliminate that victim mind- mindset. And you have to call it out as it is based on the values. You know, um, call out racism when it's racism. Yeah. Yeah. You also talked into something, Mike, that I want to address. Well, first off, um, I've always tried to push the boundaries of the boxes people hold me in. <laughs> like uh, my buddy was like, oh, man, you're, you're like my token black friend. And I looked at him and I was like, you realize I'm not even half black, right? Like if I'm your only token black friend, that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> and it, uh, you know, for him, it blew his mind. He's like, oh, my God, I guess maybe... I, uh, <laughs> anyway, it opened him up a little bit, but um, 
I forget exactly what you said, but it had me reflect back into people's comfort zones. And this whole thing seems like a fight to be comfortable. People don't want to be, you know, in the position where they called somebody by the wrong pronoun and got called out for it. And there is an entire culture built around calling people out for things. And it's, it's <laughs> to me, that's, that's also crazy because it's, it's just, let's go around giving everybody shit for everything and basically verbally abusing people until they stop doing what they're doing. Like, like uh, Lynette was saying, she didn't even feel comfortable to make a post. And it's like, because of what people may have made up about why she posted it and then potentially calling her out and attacking her for their ass assumptions of her intentions without even first checking in to say, why did you post this question mark? And then be like, I just wanted to be a dick. Okay, cool. Now I'm going to call you out for being a dick. <laughs> Instead, it's like, oh, she probably is trying to tell people that this is, you know, black people's real problems or something. And assuming that she's not in a position to do that. And it's, it's insane. That's not really how that works. It can't work that way. Well, and, <laughs> um, you know, even in the description, it says from the author of Black Lives Matter, but that's another argument is people don't take the time to read the whole thing, watch the whole thing. They like see first snippets, read the first couple sentences in there make an assumption on that as well too and it's like you guys do your own research come on be engaged and involved and look into it yourself yes like they just tr uh trade it or share it for the headline another thing that's really sad about where things have come is i can remember uh, being in certain discussion groups where it was, um, uh, you know, like even with like, you know, Black Panthers and like people who are very, like very different viewpoints and very extreme viewpoints. And I can remember saying, and I might have, I forget, I may have even said this in this group, but saying things that I knew were that they would tear apart. And, and that there was probably actually a lot there. And I was like, I know that they're going to have, uh, like, I know that, I forget what, what viewpoint it was, but I'm like, I know that I, while I think this is kind of true, there's something incomplete, incomplete about this viewpoint I'm holding. And I spoke it and they showed me the parts that were wrong about it where it was an incomplete truth. It had truth to it, but there was other sides that I was unaware of because I didn't grow up with their experience and I wasn't aware. And I was able to be informed and told, oh, okay, like I could see the other side of it now. And because we were in a mature enough scene, it was not overly dramatic and they didn't, they, they might've, I think some people in the room probably did like, oh, this, this kid knows nothing. And, you know, forget him. He's another one of whatever. But, um, but you know, but that was allowed and that was, you know, not many people would, would even have spoken at that time. But nowadays, I just feel like the kids who are coming up now, 
will never feel empowered to speak something that could be picked apart that way in front of a group of people who could actually really, really actually teach them and really show them what these different types of experiences can be like and, and just expand our worldview so that we can understand each other. Because like you said, Rachel, this person's coming with a different experience and he's expressing some sort of true emotion, but like, how can we then, like, would he have been in the place to try to see the other side and see, I don't know. And, you know, maybe he just had a really messed up experience, but maybe there was something he didn't understand or, but if we're not, the more that we polarize, then the less those chances happen and it just gets further and further. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Michael, I love what you just said. And I think, you know, Brandon, it, it was you that, you know, where I got rid of my victim story and, and really my life turned around and hasn't been the same since. So there is certainly something to what you're saying and something really empowering. Um, and it's funny, the conversation started where I, I felt like, hmm, this, I'm not sure this is going to land for me. And now it's like utterly landing. Um, so I, I do like the idea of and Michael, to your point, I, I do like the idea of, you know, loving, you know, the people around me and caring enough about them. I will tell you that getting rid of my victim story was the most empowering experience that Brandon and his team brought to my life, uh, Gingy, Greg, Patricia, and so many others. Um so there's something there. So when we're so right now in my mind, I'm I'm hearing a couple of things. One is on on the side of having a real conversation, person to person. Should they be? Let me just be uh, not so careful with my words. Spouting a victim story as I was to love them and empower them is to hold them accountable and uh, not to invest in their victim story, right? Right. So it's in their empowerment story. Um, go ahead, forgive me. Who was speaking, somebody? Okay. So, and then on the other side, we have what what's sort of bringing to our consciousness, which I can appreciate is that, you know, be the proper custodians of our minds and be present to these seemingly camouflage, maybe, or unsuspecting viruses, if you will, that are attempting to leverage something real to uh, an evil sort of an evil uh, or maybe not so helpful. Um, agenda, not not of good human interest, in my opinion. So, yeah, I and I really like what you said, Michael, because I've learned more by being vulnerable enough to to speak something and be present to my own ignorance and allow that to be a topic than than when I take a position of righteousness. So. All really good conversation, you guys. Thank you. 
You know, something along those lines, if I may, I, and in my readings and waking up my consciousness, I found out about bots on these social media platforms. And, yeah, you know, it kind of sounds real. Like, yeah, a computer could totally sit there and have a conversation with you. And then I started thinking, but why would someone program a computer to have a hateful conversation with you? What is the goal? What is the end goal to drive the divisiveness? And so, you know, you start hearing about all these conservative voices being censored everywhere. And then now looking at comments here on Telegram and people talking about bots and I'm seeing these hateful speech, I'm recognizing that all of the conversations that I was either engaged in or saw uh, through social media over the years and seeing this hateful speech and just thinking, oh my gosh, how can people be so mean? Just so downright mean. And now I don't think it was actual people in most instances, but a lot of other people around this world don't know that piece of information yet either. And so while we might be being attacked on the conservative voice side and not being able to um, put anything out there that would then get us you know, criticize, ridicule, lose our job, anything that even comes from a place of love. But they're able to talk about their beliefs. And if the same bots are on their chats creating hate, making them hate us, and it's not actual real people necessarily creating hate conversation with them, it's technology turning us against each other. And my question is, why? What is the end goal? Division. And through division, through hatred, through divisiveness, you, you pit the population against itself. And so if there is a group of people who wishes to control a population, well, you, you take yourself out of the equation and you pit the population against itself. And then the the cause of suffering and the cause of tyranny are ignored. Now, now I'm glad that you brought it up in, in the sense of a polar, a polarized conversation of the, the left and the right, because I want everyone, you know, in, in this moment, like connect with your values, with your principles and see that this is not a phenomenon exclusive to the left and its ideologies. You'll see it here on Telegram because we're doing the same thing when we identify all people on the left as such and so, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and, and it's interesting because I know, like I know a lot of the, these people on a lot of these chat, voice chats and, and a lot of these chat rooms, their heart's in the right place and they have values and principles and yet they go against those values and principles, which is going to cause the same psychosis that we're seeing on the left in the right. And it already is. 
because we're doing the same thing when we say all those people over there, right? So when we refuse to recognize individuals, right? Um, I mean, I've tried to bring up in many voice chats, like, like building bridges and the amount of resistance I get from people is, is alarming because they're already set in their righteousness and in their judgment of that other group, right? Again, identifying people as a group. That's a dehumanization. You don't recognize individuals. So there's an unwillingness to reach out to people of a different ideology than your own because you've already demonized them. You've already dehumanized them. You've already identified them by a, as a group. And so this isn't a phenomenon that is exclusive to one side of the political spectrum or another. This is everywhere. And so if we wake up and we begin to recognize our own hand in this, and we take responsibility and we hold ourselves accountable to our values, right? Is it really, is anyone in this room, is your value to judge based on a group? Do you judge based on race? Do you judge based on sex? Why would you judge based on someone's political leanings? Now, I'm not saying anything about the hierarchy of ideologies. Like, yes, some ideologies are valuable and productive. Some are not. There are a hierarchy of ideologies. However, we need to be mindful that judging anyone based on a group identity erases their individuality. And this is poison in our culture right now. It is tearing us apart. It is tearing apart the social fabric. It is tearing apart this country. You guys have heard me mention before, building bridges, building bridges. Now in this group, I don't really get too much resistance because y'all have been doing work for some of you for many years. but recognize that we have the tendency to do the same thing. And that whether it's coming from one side or the other, it is tearing apart the social fabric. So I, I go back again to that responsible individualism of holding yourself accountable, getting in touch with your values, and not only being willing to hold others accountable, but recognize the contradiction that your speech and your actions are to your values. Are you in integrity with your values? That's, that's my definition of integrity. Many of you know that. Integrity is when there's alignment with your principles and values and your speech and actions. When those things are skewed, you are out of integrity. So be mindful because what you say and what you do, regardless of who it's focused at, is it aligned 
with your values. And I think for me, I, I, I mean, I, I always like to bring it back around to, okay, well, what do we do about this? You know, we, we see that there's a poison in our culture. There's poisonous ideologies in our culture. Well, what do we do about it? Okay, so we've spoken about the accountability, holding others accountable. Don't hold other people in victim, right? Whether or not they hold themselves there or not. Because holding a person as a victim is disempowering that individual. You're taking away their accountability, thereby taking away responsibility, thereby taking away power, thereby taking away freedom. Victimhood is enslavement. And this is why they're pushing everyone to be victims. This is the enslavement of our people. So beyond the accountability and not holding people in victim, calling things out for what they are. You know racism when you see it. And I... I would say that a big part of why white folks are having such a hard time with calling out racism is because there have been decades of creating white guilt within the white population. Okay. And so because that guilt is there, there's trepidation, there's, there's hesitation. White folks don't want to call out racism. They'd rather just say, yep, I'm a racist. I don't know if you guys have seen the cancel culture and how every little thing everyone is called out for, you're a transphobe, you're a homophobe, you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. And then, then the apologies begin. Yep, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I'm a racist. I'm a homophobe. I'm a bigot. And what do you... Do you ever see forgiveness coming from the other side? No. Because the offense is feigned. It is not authentic offense. It is ideological offense. There is no grace. There is no forgiveness. Does that align with your values? No grace, no forgiveness. And so recognizing your own self-worth and recognizing, are you, are you a bigot? Are you a racist? If you're not, well, then stand, speak. Like, I have no problem talking about these subjects. You know why? Because I'm not a racist. I'm not a homophobe. I'm not a transphobe. So I have no problem speaking about this subject to anyone. And I speak boldless, boldly and shamelessly because I know my values and I'm connected to my values. So if we don't call it out, it will only get worse. And if we don't recognize it in ourselves as well, when we start to judge based on a group, then yep, you are being racist or sexist. 
And even if you judge on some other arbitrary division of groups like religion, like when I hear one sect of Christians criticizing and ridiculing another sect of Christians, not realizing they share principles, they share values. Oh, but they're Latter-day Saints. They're the wrong kind of Christians. Does that really align with your values? Jinji, you got anything else on this particular subject? Yeah, Todd? the only thing that I've been thinking about this entire time is how to engage with people from that space. And I think you just laid it out beautifully. And the only thing that I would add to that is to take into consideration where they're coming from and try to get to, you know, being in that space of discovery, trying to get down underneath to their intent behind it. Because more often than not, those values are there and there's similarity and connection points in those values. And to me, that's incredibly important. More than likely, they're trying to stay comfortable and trying to do the right thing and trying to be the good guy or whatever. And all they got to do and all you got to do is ask, why are you thinking this way? Why are you bringing this up this way? What is it that you expect to achieve by bringing this up or talking in this way or by believing these things and, and connecting with them, getting down to their intent behind it? Because they're just people. These are all just people. And these groups are divisive in nature. That's why they're groups. They're not the totality of everybody. So personal responsibility and not holding anybody to, to whatever assumption you have about them. You know, fact check it. <laughs> Be your own fact checker. Say, I'm thinking this. Is it true? Would you agree with me if I said this about you? In a compassionate way. That's something that's that's missing all over is engaging in these conversations with compassion, from a space of compassion, as if you lived and breathed it every day. As if that nothing existed except for compassion. It's easy to hate somebody when you've dehumanized them by, you know, lumping them into a group and then assumed whatever you think about those groups. But if you had compassion for them, yourself, anybody else, it would be an entirely different story. If that was your own kid. Would you be so quick to, you know, oh, they're just like all the other X, Y, and Zs. I think that's really important. Well said. Anyone else? Questions, comments, remarks, contributions of any kind? Floors open. Brandon, something came up for me this week. I just want to put it out there. And it was something where I've been stuck in my mind on something. And then, oddly enough, a statement uh, showed up that if you're, if understanding cannot be gained when you're attached to the conflict. 
So I don't know if that relates or doesn't relate to this conversation, but it felt something, it felt like something I wanted to share is just being mindful of, you know, sometimes there's a, a catch for for me to take a position or, you know, me, I'm not overly positioned, you know, I'm not quick to take a position, but I, I do be caught in a room. Um, and so I really had to stop and say, wow, I, I'm attached to the conflict. That's why I can't find resolution or what understanding would look like. And, I, and what does it mean to me to envision resolution and understanding? And my first instinct was it wasn't quite as fun as being attached to the conflict and being a right fighter like wanting to be right, and then thinking that resolution would look like, well, when I'm when it's proven that I'm right, and then realizing that is not remedy, that's not resolution, that's not understanding, and then sort of just soothing myself around, like, that, you know, really what I'm going for is peace and understanding, and, and so um, just slowly getting myself unattached to my addiction to the conflict. Anyway, just putting it out there. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of the most insidious things about our culture is our need to be right and our need to look good, which takes us away from being open, right? So we can't hear another's position. We can't hear another's arguments because we're too attached to looking good and being right. Um, and that's, that's how I'm interpreting your, uh, commitment or your, uh, your, uh, dedication to the conflict. Um, it, it's not so much about, I mean, there are people who like to be in conflict. <clears throat> I mean, I even do it sometimes <laughs> play the devil's advocate. Um, I usually do it from a place of getting people off of a set of ideologies, like a, a concept or an idea, like just throwing out there. Uh, an opposing viewpoint just to create thinking. Like, are you even willing to question your position? Are you even willing to question your pronouncements, right? <clears throat> Am I willing to question my own presuppositions and assertions? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, ego there and when you're able to let go of the ego which would be being able to let go of looking good and being right that creates a space of vulnerability and openness where real productive discussion can happen you know if, but if you've already identified the individual that you're having the conversation with as wrong or you know you you're you've already labeled them based on whether it's their membership within a group or their political ideology or whatever you're already coming from a place of i'm right you're wrong righteousness and then your need to be right and look good will it'll just be butting you'll, you'll just be butting heads with each other you'll just be battling your viewpoints battling your positions and not either one open to the other. So again, 
we talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week, where my willingness to be open and my willingness to be vulnerable and my acceptance of being wrong or the possibility of being wrong will create an openness and an invitation for the other to step into a place of a willingness to be wrong and a willingness to be vulnerable and open. And then again, a really productive discussion can happen. Um, Now, sometimes you may be entering into a conversation where there is no position on the topic on the other side. You know, if you're bringing some new idea or concept where the other person has no presuppositions about the topic, there may already be an openness regardless of you know, your differences in, ideolo- in ideologies. Um, so take that for what it's worth. Anyone else? I, I've even asked the question, are you open to being wrong right now? And if they're like, hell no. All right. And I will be. <laughs> I don't have to continue going to war because I'm stuck on being Basically, I'm stuck on trying to change somebody's mind who they're fighting to not change their mind. That's just entering straight into conflict. They're totally happy with where they are. They're trying to win. I'm trying to win. Do I really want to stay in this perpetual state of conflict? Or accept their position for what it is. That's why we have agree to disagrees. Do you really ask them? I have, yeah. I mean... I kind of read the room more or less. Uh, so I'll see if, if <laughs> um, I'll test the waters, basically. Some people I won't try that with, but if I feel that it would be beneficial to the conversation, you know, it, it, it cuts right to the point of what's happening in that, right? It's, it's not, it's not engaging in, well, what about this? And what about this? And did you ever think about it this way? I mean, I found this research here. It's that whole conversation can be ended in a heartbeat by simply like, are you telling me the way that it is? Or are we learning from each other right now? Because ultimately, I don't want to be in a conversation with somebody just dictating to me what's true and what's not. That's not fun, nor is it educational for me. And so... I mean, I haven't done it a lot, I got to admit, but maybe with five different people or so, um, I've just kind of stopped and said, hold on a second. Are you willing to be wrong at all in this conversation? They're like, well, yes. Boom. Now we have some working room. We can actually engage in conversation. And that's happened about half the time. And the other half people are like, absolutely not. I know what's true. And it's like, Cool. So I've heard everything you have to say at this point. I'm not going to continue trying to convince you because you don't want to hear it. You almost have to discern whether or not it's worth putting your energy into it. Well, if it'll end in a fist fight, that's not something I want to engage with. (laughs) So I'll read them a little bit and be like, you know, maybe this will make them hate me more. Maybe this will have us moving on quicker. Maybe this will get clear and maybe spark some, some thought for them. And they say, wow, you know, I wasn't, but I don't want to be stuck in my own beliefs. I want to learn. So yeah, let's see if potentially maybe this is a workable you know, frame of thought. And I have had people open up with that question and I've had people shut down with that question. I have not ever ended in a fist fight. This is awesome. 
so that's why I say, um, you know, read the room more or less. You know, read the person, see where they're at, meet them where they're at. Don't just, you know, use it as ammunition because I know that it could be an easy thing to do. Are you willing to be wrong right now? Because I am and I'm better than you. And that's not the space I come from. Yeah, it brings up something I've been thinking of the last few weeks, too, about, like, there's been so much information overload, like, like especially the last year, you know, people obviously haven't been going out as much, so everybody's spending more time reading, watching stuff, blah, blah, blah. So there's, like, so much information that when, when I'm approaching, you know, if I have I have some kind of objective of, you know, bringing someone's viewpoint, maybe shifting it, softening it up a little bit. Introducing information seems to kind of not really get that far. Like even if say something about vaccines or something, it's like they don't really care about the information. They'll quickly have some sort of, they'll just quickly have all these reasons that that couldn't even be true. It's like, okay, whatever. So it's been, I, I don't, haven't really figured out the other way around that, but it's like, uh, like how to communicate with people in a time where the the how people are assessing what communication is valid or what information is valid or false or uh, they just whatever um, like what other avenues we have to uh, to work with people on on coming into a more a more balanced viewpoint well <clears throat> we talked about this last week rather than if someone's not open uh to information you might have if they're not open to ideas that you'd like to share i would say your best approach especially if it's someone you you know care about um is to just create an open, authentic space, create trust so that in the future, if events occur for them in their life in a way where they are now searching, they'll come to you because you've created trust because they feel good around you. Remember we talked about last week how, you know, if you, if you're always hanging out with people who share your ideas, but they're all a bunch of assholes you know, and here's this person over here who you don't share ideas with, but you feel good around them. You know, when you're hanging out with all your buddies who all share the same ideas, it doesn't really feel that good if they're all just assholes, which is why I said we need to be so mindful about how we focus our attention and our speech on others, right? So rather than demonizing other groups, rather than attacking people based on their beliefs, their religions, their ideologies, or anything else, you know, coming from that place, like Ginger was just speaking, coming from that place of compassion, of understanding, of openness, being authentic, creating trust. Well, when shit hits the fan or when they're seeking truth, they're going to be want to be around people that they feel good around. Right. So it's about creating that kind of a space with people that, you know, they will come around at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, come back another day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
I would also say being okay and accepting if they don't. Because there's nothing wrong with the positions and the stance and stuff, the road that they're taking. They can they can live a perfectly fine, healthy, happy, productive life in where they're at. May not be the life that I consider something of value, but ultimately they are on a greater journey that you know, with this level of perception or perspective, we cannot see. And who knows if it's if it's in five years, ten years, you know, however many years, they may learn that lesson. They may come looking around. They may not. They may go all the way down the rabbit hole. Who knows? But that's their journey. That's their path. And if we're not, if we're truly not taking positions on people and basing them off of the groups, then we're not saying they're one of the hopeless ones. We're not saying, oh, they're one of the ones that we just need to give up on. We're not saying that they're ones that will never change their minds. It's being okay with what they're choosing and why they're choosing it. I mean, I think an important thing too is like when you remove the subject, you know, and the context that comes with it, that is the point of contention or conflict. And you, you know, it's, it's a thing that you guys don't talk about, right? Like politics, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That if you could build a relationship outside of those things, you know, on a basic human level, you know, the things that you do have in common, like you like gardening, you like certain sports, you like, you know, whatever, and you build a human relationship outside of the conflict, you probably would have a better chance at building that relationship um, that will sooner or later, you'll be able to like unpack the conflict and actually have a conversation. It's so very easy to sit there and say, oh, well, I just, I can't, I cannot be friends with you if you don't agree with my political beliefs. But reality is, is like, you could agree that maybe political beliefs is not something that you guys even decide to bring up and have a relationship with somebody outside of that. And that's something that we have lost. And as conservatives, it's really easy to feel so attacked because that's, that's been our reality for a very long time is that because we have these certain beliefs that automatically puts us in a, in a box, you know, we're white supremacists, we're racist, we're homophobic, we're xenophobic, we're, you know, X, Y, Z, thus and such. And it's really hard to try to always take the bigger, you know, the higher road and be the bigger person. And it's like, at what point do they accept responsibility for their actions? When in, you know, in reality, it, it could be something that we don't even necessarily address right now. We can, we can side table the conversation for later and just continue to build and enrich a relationship, you know, on a human level with them outside of that conflict and keep those relationships alive. Exactly. That goes right back to what Rachel was saying about, am I committed to the conflict or am I committed to something else? Like maybe the relationship, you know, there's yeah. lots of things I don't talk to people about because I know we don't see eye to eye on it. It doesn't damage our relationship. Have well, to, anyway. well, and I mean, I guess it is important too, because like any relationship, there's two people, right? Or, you know, there's, there's me and then there's the other person. And if, um, if you put in the work and you put your energy towards it and you say, Hey, look, like I love you and I care about you. I care about our relationship. Um, and I can see that this is a point of conflict and contention in our relationship. And I just rather not discuss that with you and if you're open to you know continuing to build you know bridges and and be friends outside of that 
you know, I'm there for it. But if they're not, I mean, at that point, I would, I would say that it's, it's acceptable for you to, um, you no longer have to put your energy towards something. You can't force people to meet you halfway. You know, if you come halfway and they decide not to, I, I believe that at that point, it's okay to love people from a distance and create um, healthy boundaries and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe one day they'll come to their senses. And if not, then, then really it's just like not worth the energy to continue draining yourself over somebody that isn't willing to also put in the same amount of work as you. Cause I mean, what are you going to do? Chase after somebody and beg them to be a part of your life? No. I've also had experiences like for instance, with my little brother where because people chased him down and, and, you know, we're so energetically trying to create relationship or maintain relationship with him. Um, I'm to date the only person he hasn't cut out of his life, at least in regards to our family. And I contribute that to my willingness to have whatever level of relationship he was interested in. So not being attached to what I think I the uh, what I think relationship looks like or is supposed to look like, or thinking if he doesn't want to, you know, talk to me every year, <laughs> even uh, that it's it's not worth my time, or he doesn't put the energy into it that I do. Um, I just take a step back and I'm like, hey man, I choose this relationship, however it shows up, and. What are you willing to do? You know, more or less, not, not directly in those words, you know, but when I see him, I'm happy and I don't smother him. I don't force hugs. I don't whatever else. And to our other brother that shared to his mom, my dad, the rest of our extended family, my sister, even he's cut all of them out of his life for either, you know, five years or so, three years or permanently except for me because I haven't been committed to anything, but whatever the relationship shows up as. And that's important if for them, if for him specifically, if he said, you know, I need to be alone for 10 years, I would, I would allow that. And I'd feel, you know, that I get to be loving and supportive from a distance. And if all of a sudden he needed to move in with me and I'd see him all day, every day, great. I get to love up close and personal now. But those are just different variations of the same relationship and I'm not attached to how those show up. And I bring this up because I often hear the argument, if they don't put in the work that I do, then they're not worth the time. Or why would you go the extra mile for somebody who wouldn't go the extra mile for you? It's very transactional. And I don't personally impose that on my relationships. And that's just a pure choice for me it's like what type of flavor ice cream do you like this is my preference i go with this route and i'm not saying that should be the way that anybody else manages their relationships but for me it's been incredibly empowering and um i'll just i'll just leave that there right now in the space in which i'm in I'm finding it very difficult to have any kind of relationship with anybody because everything around us has been politicized. And 
it's just better left unsaid and not create waves. So um, I'm finding it difficult. Is anyone else, does anyone have any ideas on what to talk about these days that isn't politicized? How are you Among <laughs> Go ahead. That was good. Yeah. No, for me, that's that's just where I start. You know, checking in with them, seeing where they're at, seeing what's coming up for them. And if they're like, oh, "I just can't believe all this COVID nonsense," or "I can't believe all this presidential crap," it's like, okay, I don't make it a political conversation, even if the topic is political. You know, they're like, man, that sounds tough. You know, their relationship with whatever they're talking about. Or, man, that sounds like so much fun. Sounds exhilarating. It could be anything. But I talk more into their experience and where they're at with whatever the subject is with no need to interject my own experiences, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I actually do what Gigi just said, and then I follow it up with, well, how are the things going? Or how are things otherwise? Right? And then that kind of just steers the conversation into the otherwise. <laughs> because you're right, um, in terms of, like, every conversation seems to be, well, first of all, not every. So many conversations appear to be initiated through this political, you know, topic or, or various political topics or positions. But I often say, so are things otherwise. But I'll actually empathize or I'll, and, and <laughs> Brandon's cringing right now, no victim stories. So I'll say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds interesting or that sounds overwhelming. How are things otherwise? No, I'm rocket science. Wish I had something better for you, but that's as simple as I make it. And it may be as simple as how you approach the relationship and a conversation. So often we approach a conversation from a place of wanting to speak our experience or wanting to speak our ideas and concepts. <clears throat> a very powerful way to be with other people if you care about them and, and this is, and I'm not saying that this is even necessarily someone in your family or anything else <clears throat> in general, I care about people. So, and you may be the same, you know, in general, you care about people, all people, regardless. And if you care about people, a powerful way to be with people is just like Gingy said, is questioning them and taking allowing them to take you through a journey of their experience of their life. And, and this takes a, a, it's, I guess it's a skill. I would say that it's learned over time, but it's, it's really, it's more about a presence, a way of being with people that you create, you, you come from an authentic place. You come from a vulnerable place and thereby you create an invitation and opening for vulnerability, for openness and, and rather than being focused on what you want to say, be present to and focused on what they're saying and on what they're not saying. There's a lot in people's eyes. There's a lot in their body language. 
There's a lot in the presence, in, in, in their body, in their, in their, just in the feeling of being in their presence, right? In that space, you can feel anxiety. And so when you open up, be vulnerable and are able to, rather than being focused on what things you want to say and what things you want to do, being genuinely interested for the other and, and from a place of genuine compassion and understanding for them, that can allow you to build on regardless of what topics they bring up because you're not focused on needing to make them wrong for whatever they say. You're not focused on needing to counter anything they say. So it's, you can quote unquote depoliticize their conversation by just being present. That's a really good point. All righty. So if there's nothing else, we can uh, go on to part two. Um, I feel like we've definitely hit on this subject. Anything else? I, I mean, I feel like we kind of, it's interesting where it ended up. Um, and it's no accident that, you know, we were identifying poisonous ideologies in our culture and, you know, the group identity and the, the elimination of the individual and the enslavement that occurs when you victim, make everyone a victim and hold everyone in a victim space. And we don't hold anyone accountable and we don't hold ourselves accountable. And where we ended up was in, a, in the, how do we create genuine connection, right? And I think that that is, I think that is actually, it may seem unrelated, but it is so relevant to this conversation because what we just ended on is how we bring people back to being individuals, is how we bring people back from identifying as a group to finding their authentic selves, to experiencing them, their authentic selves. So I think in an interesting way, this is circled around in a perfect way, you know. Um, any final comments? All righty. I'm going to...